You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Greatest Commandment. The Greatest Commandment. Before we get into it, just want to uh, first and foremost thank the other elders, Elder Joel and Elder Benji, for stepping in for the past few weeks to help me uh, to help cover the pulpit and give me some rest. Uh, it is definitely necessary and thankful for that. Also, if you're expecting to uh, get back into the Gospel of John series this morning, sorry, you'll have to wait a couple more months. There's a couple of things that we want to do. Easter's on the way, and so we sort of want to do a lead-up to that, as well as a, a series that we, as elders, were talking about and want to discuss before we get back to the Gospel of John. In addition to this, again, as mentioned, Easter is on the way, so please, 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 as Sister Precious mentioned, invite your friends and families who need to hear the Gospel God has been putting a message on my heart that I believe everyone here needs to hear, whether believer or unbeliever. It's a good reminder, and Easter is a great time to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please uh, mark your calendars for that service and invite your friends and families who, who need to hear the gospel. Now this morning, we'll be looking at what Christ uh, proclaims to be the single most greatest commandment in all of Scripture, and that is, of course, to love the Lord your God, your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This command summarizes what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, and that is someone who is a lover of God. If you think about it, the reason why we are saved, why we are redeemed, why we are justified before God is so that we could have a right relationship with God. And not just a right relationship, but in fact, the, the relationship that Christ had with his Father. I've said this before in the past. Christ did not die so that you can have a personal relationship with the Father. He died so that you could have his relationship with the Father. Right? As Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus says, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. That's Christ's relationship with the Father. And the number one characteristic, the descriptive of that relationship that he has with the Father is love. Perfect love defines the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is perfect love in the heart of the Trinity. And that's the kind of relationship that we are invited into. That's the kind of relationship that is made right between us and God when we are saved, when we are forgiven, when we're justified before God. And so again, this great commandment to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the number one distinctive of those who claim to be worshipers of God. Sure, there's other things that we do at church and other things that we stand for as Christians, but as we'll see in this morning, all of those other things come secondary to fulfilling this greatest commandment. Now, something important to mention here, and I believe this is why God placed this message on my heart to speak on this morning, is that just as this is the greatest commandment in all of Christendom, it is also the commandment that is most distorted or omitted in churches today. And let me explain. This commandment is, is distorted when churches preach that all you have to do in order to be a Christian is to love God. 
And they leave it at that. There's no explanation as to what that entails, what the Bible says that looks like. All they say is that you have to love God. And as a result, what often happens is that people then define how that love looks like in human terms, equating it to some worldly kind of love. Maybe it's an emotional high during worship uh, songs, right? Or, or this feeling or this fluttering in your heart, at, an emotionalism in the relationship that we have with God. And as a result, uh, we, 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 what gets cultivated is a shallow, superficial kind of love for God. And we see it. We even see it in our worship songs, right? There's a lot of worship songs today that sounds like it's been, it was written by a 90s boy band, right? Remember this song back in the day? I don't know if you remember this. In the Secret? Remember this song? Who, who, who remembers this song, right? In the secret, in the quiet place. That's how they all sang like back in the day in the 90s. It's great. Sonic Flood, right? Great. Uh, in the stillness, you are there. In the secret, in the quiet hour. Wait, I, only for you because I want to know you more. Man, I love this song. I used to love this song so much, but guess what? Who is this song for? I wouldn't know because Jesus' name is not in it, right? You don't, not anywhere in the original lyrics is, is God, does God come up or Jesus come up, right? It may as well be sung to a girl or a guy that you have affection for. In fact, and in and, and church, I'm saying this, right? I'm, I'm confessing to you. Please don't judge me, right? But in high school, I used to sing this song in the hallways to attract girls, I feel, I feel like I'm being judged. I feel like... Right? Because listen, because listen, okay, listen to the chorus, right? I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more, girl. Right? And of course, you know, I'm trying to attract these high school crushes, but I didn't attract anyone except for other Christians, right? <laughs> it's like, hey, isn't that a Christian song? Like, ah, darn it. Ah, the jig is up, you know? My point in saying all of this is that, there, that, that loving God in modern-day churches is, as believers has often been equated to an, an emotional experience, And what that has resulted in is, again, shallow, superficial love for God. The kind of love that that is more lip service than anything else. The kind of love that says, in order to be a Christian, I I only need to love God and nothing else has to change in my life. The kind of love that says that, uh, you know, I I can love God but continue living the way I want to live. It's a kind of love that depicts uh, affection for the Lord on the Lord's day, but every other day of the week, it's rebellion. We'll touch more on this later, but this is how the great, this great commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength is distorted in many churches today. Now, on the flip side of this, this is also the, great, this is the commandment that is greatly omit, uh, that omitted in churches today, where the rule of law or, or legalism has encompassed the purpose and the drive of the church, where rituals and, and customs and traditions have choked out the, the beating heart of, of love from the worshiper. Similar to, to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, some churches have prevailed in the work of the Lord, patiently enduring, preserving what is true and right and sacred, but at the cost of abandoning their first love. And as the Apostle Paul calls them, they are, they are noisy gongs and clanging symbols of loveless religion. Now, both these kinds of churches and believers individually fall short of fulfilling this great commandment. 
And my desire for us this morning is to understand what it truly means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Because listen, this commandment is the key to life itself. The key to us walking in the will of God, in the purposes of God. The key to us living a life that is blessed and prospered by God. The key to us avoiding, avoiding the pitfalls of temptation and sin. And ultimately, the fulfillment of this commandment in our lives is evidence, great evidence, that we truly have a right relationship with God. And that's what our passage this morning is dealing with. Jesus, in our text, is addressing the religiosity of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the, the scribes who had lost their first love. But at the same time, he's recalling what it entails to truly love God with our entire being. So my hope this morning, church, that if, if you have been loving God with a shallow love, a superficial love, that by God's grace, by his word, by, by his spirit, you would be edified, corrected, and moved this morning to truly love him as what he calls us to, in terms of how he calls us to love him. And, and also, if you have lost your first love, if your faith has just been a, a, a set of customs and rituals and repetitious prayers, and you've, and you've run dry in your walk with God, that you would find that first love again. You would go back to the start. So let's jump into God's word this morning. Everyone say jump. I haven't asked that in a while. So some context for us as we go into our passage. Uh, this, this passage takes place towards the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it, it falls in between the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and a couple of days before the Last Supper, the Passover feast. The Sanhedrin, the religious elites of Jesus' day, saw the reception that Jesus received as he entered into Jerusalem. And so they desperately wanted to get rid of Jesus now. What they, what they saw was, oh man, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and everybody loves him. All the influence is going to him. And so the Sanhedrin said, we got to get rid of this guy. From verse 13 to 17, we see what the Sanhedrin tries to do. The Pharisees ask Jesus about taxes, all right? They're trying to trap him now, hoping that to, to paint Jesus either as an insurrectionist against Rome, right? If Jesus said, hey, don't pay your taxes to Rome, they could just tell uh, Pilate and, and have Jesus arrested. Or if he said, uh, you know what, pay your taxes to Rome, they could easily paint him as similar to a tax collector, right? Someone who's like a dog of Rome, a, a servant of Rome, therefore turning the people against him. Of course, Jesus turns all of that on their head and he outsmarts the Pharisees and, and he wins that conversation. Next, in verse 18 to 27, we see the Sadducees now, another religious group in the Sanhedrin, try to trap Jesus as well. This time appealing to scripture and throwing an outrageous situation to Jesus to try to make him look silly in his rebuttal. But of course, Jesus calls them out on their disbelief and points to them to true scripture and what the scripture truly says, and of course, foiling their trap. So the Pharisees failed, the Sadducees failed, and in our passage, it was now time for someone else from the Sanhedrin to come up. It was the scribes. The scribes were the lawyers of the Sanhedrin. If the Pharisees were sort of the religious enforcers of the Sanhedrin, and the Sadducees were the religious aristocracy of the Sanhedrin, sort of the politicians of the Sanhedrin, then the scribes were sort of the in-between people, the, the, the neutral party in the group. They were the guys who, who did the clerical work, 
right? If you wanted a marriage certificate to be written out, you'd go to the scribes and they write it out for you. If you wanted a, a certificate of divorce, then you'd go to the scribes. And if you wanted to take out a loan, you wouldn't go to the bank, you'd go to the scribes. If you wanted a, a will for your children, you'd go to the scribes and they'd write out a will for you in the context of the Jewish law, in the law of Moses. So it was required for the scribes to be experts of the law, hence why Matthew calls them lawyers in his gospel. And so after the Pharisees fail and the Sadducees fail, it was now up to the scribes, the, the lawyers, to try and trap Jesus. Our passage says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Now you have to understand, this was a loaded question in Jesus' day. Again, it was another trap. See, over time, the rabbis had concluded that there were 613 laws or commandments given to the Jewish people in the law of Moses that, were, that was necessary for them to live a Jewish life to be in right relationship with God. They got, they, by the way, they, they got that number because in the original Hebrew, the Ten Commandments had 613 letters. And so the rabbi said, well... I guess 613 is a lucky number. We'll come up with 613 laws, and this is what we're going to put to the people. So, and of course, along with that, there's commentaries and other rules that the rabbis added on to that. Now, from those 613 laws or commands were two categories, heavy commands or light commands. Heavy commands being more binding to an individual versus the light commands being less binding. It's kind of, it's kind of like the restrictions that we had during the pandemic, right? It's like, oh, oh uh, Christmas, you can't have your family over for Christmas or you'll be fine. That's very binding, right? But you can go Christmas shopping in a packed Walmart with complete strangers, line up forever for hours, and that's okay because it's science, right? Something like that. Or, or it's like, you know, you have to wear a mask when you go into a restaurant, right? But when you sit down at a table, it's okay. You're protected. The table has this aura that keeps the virus away. It's science, right? Trust is science. Now, what added to the lunacy of these 613 laws that the Sanhedrin was enforcing is that there was no consensus among the leaders. There is no consensus among the Sadducees, the Pharisees, as to what was heavy commands or light commands. Command. Some rabbis said that tying up your donkey on the Sabbath was against the law. Some said that it was okay to do that. Some, uh, so the, the, the Pharisees said that you know, what's important is, is the, the, the entirety of the Old Testament. The Sadducees said, no, 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 just the five first books of the Bible, the, the, the laws that Moses wrote. So, so there was no consensus and there was a bunch of confusion and, and disagreements in the Sanhedrin according, uh, in, in terms of what the law was. And so now here's the scribes stuck in the middle and all their, all their job is to do the clerical work, right? It's like, well, what, what do we write? Like, who do we go with? Who do we agree with? So the question that the scribe brings to Jesus is accomplishing two things, really. One, again, it's to trap Jesus. If Jesus says one thing, they could always argue from the other side of the aisle, right? They could say, well, you say this, but the, the Sadducees say this. Or, or, well, you say this, but the Pharisees say this. But the other possibility is that this scribe was genuinely seeking some answers, 
right? It says in our passage that when he heard that Jesus answered them well, it's like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Maybe he can clarify what's going on in the law. So it's possible that this scribe was asking for himself, really, for his benefit of all the 613 laws that they needed to follow as a Jewish society, which one was the most important? The one that actually mattered, the one that actually got us to a right relationship with God. So then verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus does something great here, right? He he doesn't refer back to the rabbi's teachings, or what the Sadducees said, or what the Pharisees said. He, He goes back to Scripture. He goes back to the Word of God, the Holy Word of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, what is known to the Jewish culture as the Shema. The Shema was so integral to the Jewish society even today. Literally, it was customary for every faithful Jew to wake up in the morning and declare, Shema O Israel, Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then at the end of the day, before they slept, they would declare again, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this wasn't anything new that Jesus was bringing to the table. Yet as we see from our passage, it leaves a lasting impact on this scribe. Why is that? Well, being a student of the law, the scribe would have known the context of the Shema. Why this command was given in the first place to the Jewish people. So let's take a look at that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 6, this is, where, this is what Jesus is quoting here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the Shema. That's, the, that, 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 that's what Jesus is quoting. Now, the context to this verse is right, right before this passage in verse 1 to 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, this is Moses speaking, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, You and your sons and your sons' sons by keeping all the statutes and his commands which I command you all the days of your life and that your your days may be long. God gave the Jewish people this command through Moses right before they entered into the promised land. And for specific reason as well, look at, if you go down just a couple of verses, verse 10 of that same passage, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, listen to this, verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in the midst of, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. 
Let the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the Lord, or the earth, rather. God gave this commandment to love him with all our being so that the people would never forget who it was that they served. God knew that once the people settled into the land, they, they got the cities, they got the, the, the land flowing in milk and honey, that when they got what they wanted, once they got their fill of prosperity and blessing, that human nature would take over and they would forget who? God. And not just forget God, but even replace God. He says in verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Meaning God knew that the human tendency is to forget about God and also replace them with other gods. Idolatry. And it's the same thing for us, right? Oftentimes when things are going well, our tendency is to pray less, to seek God less. And the very thing that God blesses us with becomes the very thing that we worship, idolatry. Like the Israelites, we forget that God is the one who delivered us out of bondage, who delivered us out of sin, who saved us. And listen, this is why Jesus says that this is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. Because, we tr- because if we truly fulfill this command, we won't ever have to worry about stumbling into sin or, or participating in idolatry or forgetting the God that we worship. I mean, how could we? When, when the command is to love God with every fiber of our being, with all our heart, meaning the seat of our emotions and our, our affections, when, 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 when God calls us to love us with all our soul, meaning the, 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 the thing that consists of our very life, the thing that lives eternally, whether in condemnation or in, in, in paradise, when, when God calls us to love Him with all our minds, the thing that, that, that cultivates our will and our intentions, and with all our strength, that's every action, that's every effort that we make in the flesh. How can we uh, fall into sin or disobey God when our entire being is pursuing after him in love? If every fiber of our being is striving towards God in love, there's no room for idolatry or unfaithfulness or selfishness or pride or sin or pursuing after things of this world. That's what it means to love God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let me summarize it this way. Loving God produces in us a holiness. Because, because listen, loving God results in a reverence for God. Loving God results in a reverence for God. When we truly love God, it means that we are declaring that we know God, that we are a friend of God. We know who He is, that He is holy, that he is just, that he hates sin and he punishes the wicked, that just as much as God is merciful and gracious, that he will by no means overlook sin. Knowing this, knowing that this is who God is, the God that we say that we love, should result in us a reverence, should result in us a a fearful respect and honor towards him, a desire to heed his word and obey. This is why anyone who, who says that they love God but continues to live in sin without remorse, without repentance, is a liar. Because how can you say that you love a holy God but live unholy lives? That's like me saying, I love my wife, but I'm going to do everything that she hates. Trust me, that's not a good idea, husbands. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything that she doesn't like and told me not to do because it makes me feel good, because it's what I want to do, and because she'll love me anyways. That's not love. Paul says love does not insist on its own way. He says it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love shows respect. It shows honor. But most importantly, love manifests itself in complete obedience. 1 John 5, verse 2 to 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Jesus Himself says, Whoever has My commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves Me. So there is an obedience to love. There is a, a change in, in, your, in who you are when you come to love God. Listen, a complete love manifests in complete obedience towards God. So don't be fooled when you hear a preacher say, all you need to do you know, is, is love God and, be a, and that's what makes you a Christian. Or, or that loving God requires no life change, no repentance or, or of sin, no obedience of His Word. Because that's not love. And if it is, it's a love for a God that's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is a holy, holy, holy God. So back in Deuteronomy, we even see God says, you shall, in verse 14, you shall not go after other gods. The God of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Here's the point, right? Don't forget that the, that. The same God who showed you mercy could just have easily shown you wrath as well. That should fuel the fear of the Lord in your life. Loving God results in reverence. So Jesus tells this scribe that this is the greatest commandment. He also adds in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In Matthew 22, the parallel to this passage, Jesus adds, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be broken down as such. The first three deal with our love for God, right? You will have no other gods before me. You will not use the Lord's name in vain, and you will keep the Sabbath day holy. All of that deals with our love for God, us loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Meanwhile, the rest of the Ten Commandments, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet your neighbor's possessions. All those things deals with loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so Jesus summarizes the entirety of the law to those two commandments. And it says that the entirety of the Old Testament, that's what, he, that's what he's talking about with the law and the prophets, is summarized to these two things. All the law of Scripture hinges on whether or not we fulfill these two commandments. Love God and love others. That, by the way, is plus life, right? We believe here at Plus Life that our vertical relationship with God is, is necessary so that our horizontal relationship with others can flourish, can be right as well. So we love God, and, we, and, and by product of that is that we love others. Now, on a side note, notice what Jesus doesn't say in our passage. He doesn't say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, therefore love yourself more. 
doesn't say that, right? Therefore, practice self-love. Therefore, you know, work on yourself, right? You know, learn to love yourself, right? Doesn't say that, doesn't say that. People take this verse to mean that we need to love ourselves more. That's not what this verse is saying. If anything, Scripture says that we love ourselves too much, right? The root of every sin is either our pride or our selfishness. If anything, Scripture tells us that in order to completely love God with our entire being, with our entire being and to love others, that we need to decrease and He needs to increase. That we need to die to self, that we need to crucify our flesh to the cross, that we need to, to not consider ourselves more highly than others, more important than others. So listen, this is a call to love one another, one another just as much as you already love yourself, right? So the scribe hears all of this, he makes the connection to Deuteronomy and, and the Ten Commandments, and he has an epiphany, he says to Jesus in, in verse 32, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. In verse 33, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is what the the, the scribe uh, realizes, right? Loving God rejects religion. Loving God rejects religion. When we truly love God with all our hearts, with all our soul, our mind, and strength, any notion of rituals or customs or legalism goes out the window. Because we don't function from necessity, we serve with sincerity. We, we don't worship out of obligation, we worship out of opportunity. We get to come to church, we get to sing songs to our loving Heavenly Father, we get to sing or we get to utter prayers, we get to give, right? We get to do all of these things because we love God. Loving God rejects any form of false religion. That's what the scribe is getting at here. The the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the ritual cleansing, the repetitious prayers that was being practiced by the Jewish people. Loving God rejects religious performance. Now mind you, this doesn't mean that all religion is bad. There are ordinances given to us by the Savior himself that we need to keep as a church, as believers, but even those ordinances come out of a place of love. They come out of a desire of wanting to do it, to either to remember Christ's death, burial, and uh, resurrection, or to identify ourselves with Christ. That's baptism and the Lord's table. And again, the Bible doesn't ever say that all religion is bad. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's, again, the greatest commandment that we were just talking about, right? Loving God means that we keep ourselves unstained from the world. That's holiness. And loving others means that we will take care of of the, the widows and the orphans of this world. That's what pure and undefiled religion is supposed to be. How it becomes defiled is when The love for God and others is choked out by legalism and religion, by obligation and rituals, by repetitious uh, commitments and this idea that, oh, I have to do this, I have to do this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right, the great love chapter of the Bible, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I, have a prof- if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Listen, a loveless religion is evidence of a loveless relationship with God. Similar to how loving God results in reverence towards Him, Because we see who he is. We we understand that he is holy because we understand that he hates sin. Loving God should also result in us uh, in, in more love for him and others. It's when we truly understand the depths in which God has loved us with, the the lengths in which he has demonstrated us his love despite our sin that we cannot help but love him more and love others more out of the overflow of that. That's what produces sincere faith, authentic religion, authentic worship to God. When we truly love God, the responsibilities, the the practices we have in church are, are not burdensome. There are things that we want to do out of the love that we have for God. Again, that that passage in 1 John, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So listen. If you're feeling like your ministry or your worship or your devotion or your your prayer life have become routine, ritualistic, repetitious, legalistic, it's a good sign that you've lost your first love, the love that you had at first. And similar to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, Jesus commands them, remember where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. He says, go back to the start. Go back to the foundations, back to the basics. Go back to the things you first did when you first came to love God. Recall to mind the gospel that has saved you, that proclaims God's great love for you and his forgiveness over your life. Go back to the start. Loving God rejects religion. Now, back to the scribe in our passage. You'd think that everything is fine and dandy now, right? Like he, he has his epiphany. He realizes, okay, this is what God actually wants us to do. And you think now he would have this sort of this mindset of, okay, a right relationship with God. But look what Jesus says to him, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus recognizes and encourages the scribe that he was on the right track to entering the kingdom of God, but he also challenges him by saying, you're not in it yet. You're not in it yet. You're not in the kingdom just yet. Why is that? I thought loving God and loving others was the key to having a right relationship with God. I thought that if we obey these two commandments, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll, we'll, we'll have right standing before God. That's true, but you have to understand, church. And this is what we often forget when we hear this commandment. Listen, loving God requires regeneration. Loving God requires regeneration. What does the Bible say in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, right? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The reality is, in our sinful, depraved state, there is nothing in us that desires to fulfill this commandment of God. 
Nothing in us that desires to love God. In fact, John says in John 3.19, and this is the judgment on all of humanity. Listen to this. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the reality. In our sinfulness, we would rather love sin and rebel against God. In our sinful state, we would rather rebel against God, much less love Him with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. I mean, how could we even do that? When the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all things that are desperately wicked. When the Bible says that our souls are tainted with sin and are condemned to hell. When the Bible says that our mind and our thoughts are corrupt and inventors of evil. And when the Bible says that our flesh is weak and has the inclination towards sin and disobedience. Listen, there is absolutely nothing in us that could fulfill this great commandment of God. Nothing. That's why the scribe in our passage falls short of the kingdom of God. He understood the command, right? He understood what he needed to do, and he understood the importance of this command. But again, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3 to 5, uh, or, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The point is this, in order to love God, we must be regenerated by God first. And that's our hope in all of this. If there is nothing in us that would choose to love God in the first place, our hope is that God is the one who regenerates our heart. Ezekiel chapter 36. You should have this, this passage memorized by now. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will, this is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this, get this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is how we fulfill the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. It is the act of God regenerating us, enabling us, causing us to love and obey Him that satisfies this command in our life. That's why this command is the great distinctive of those who, who have a right relationship with God because it is only those whom God has regenerated and saved who can fulfill this command. That's why loving God requires regeneration. And so if the invitation is not clear here, church, as we close, our, the invitation is to throw our hands in surrender, in the faith, pleading for God's mercy, recognizing that we cannot fulfill this great command, this command that will lead to life, this command that will lead to blessing, this command that will keep us from sin, that on our own we cannot fulfill this command. And the invitation is to Cry out for God's mercy. To cry out and say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I want to love you. I desire to love you. But only you can change me. That's the invitation here. That it's only God who can cause us to, who can enable us to walk and obey his commands. And listen, again, right, with Easter coming up, that's why Jesus came. That's why Christ died on the cross for our sins. 
He took our sins that we should have died for unto himself and then attributed his, his righteousness, his relationship with God to us. He credited it to us. As if we're the ones now who, 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 who live righteously. Again, this is the great demonstration of God's love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ, again, died on the cross so that you can have his relationship with the Father so that you can have his right relationship with God, so that you can fulfill this great command to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And listen, I invite you, if you have not put your faith, if you have not surrendered to Christ this morning, that you would do so today. Because you cannot do it on your own. It's not by your works. It's not by you coming to church. It's not by how many prayers you pray or how much you know of Scripture. I mean, again, this was in our passage. This was a scribe. He was an expert of the law. But, God, but Christ still said, you're, you're not far from the kingdom. He, was still, he still wasn't in it. It's only the saving work of God that can save you, that can bring you into a right relationship with him. And for those who are believers, who have lost their first love, who have found their devotions and their time in God's presence dry and repetitious, who have been bound by legalism and rituals and customs. As Jesus says to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, remember where you have fallen, repent. And come back to the love that you had at first. Come back to the start. Go back to the basics. Go back to the things that cultivated your love for God in the first place. Set aside religion. Set aside the, the works. And come back to the love you had at first. Church, this is how we, we are to love God. The Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, as your people we confess, O oh God, the times that we have fallen short at living out this command. Whether we have abused your grace, whether we have abused your love and, and continued to live in sin with no desire to honor or obey your word and have cultivated in ourselves superficial, shallow love for you, I pray that you would forgive us. Or God, whether we have turned to legalism or we have lost our first love, or we have choked out the very passion that we have for you in rituals and customs and traditions, I pray, oh God, that you would forgive us. And in both cases, God, we repent of our sins and we turn to you, the lover of our souls. We throw ourselves at your mercy, oh God, recognizing that there is nothing good in us, nothing that we can do, O oh Lord, to fulfill this command, that it is only by your work 
by you replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That we can even desire after this command, desire to please and pursue you. Oh Lord, would you teach us how to truly love you, God, with our entire being. That every emotion, every intention, every action would be submitted to your will, would be an act of great love towards you. That God, we would not waste our time, oh Lord, our efforts, our resources, for the idols of this world. That we would not forget the God that has saved us and brought us out of bondage. That has freed us from sin and saved us and has given us eternal life. Oh Lord, cause us to love you. Cause us to love you, to put you first above all things, everything else, Lord God. Cause us to love you more than anything else in this life. More than ourselves, more than our desires, more than our feelings, more than the the, the things of this world. Cause us, oh God, to truly love you as you have loved us. With that same perfect love that you have demonstrated to us, I pray, oh Lord, would cultivate that in us as well. Help us, O oh Lord, and I pray, God, that you would move in the hearts of your children this morning, that you'd bring conviction where conviction is necessary, and lives would be surrendered to you once again, and that we would all commit to loving you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. We pray these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.